Welcome to the Think for Yourself podcast, hosted by Dr. Vikram Mancharamani. If you haven't subscribed, please do so via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Podbean. And now, over to Dr. Mancharamani. Hi, and thanks for tuning in to this sixth episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. For this episode, I plan to share the audio portion of a webinar interview I conducted with Dr. Ali S. Khan. Dr. Khan is the Dean of the College of Public Health at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, as well as the author of The Next Pandemic on the Front Lines Against Humankind's Gravest Dangers. I highly recommend the book to anyone who's interested in learning about animal diseases and how they can jump to the human species and cause chaos in the process. Uh, and the book does not read like a textbook. In fact, it reads like an adventure novel. Uh, and you can think at some point of Dr. Khan almost as, a, uh, as an Indiana Jones-like figure chasing diseases around the world. In fact, his title at uh, the CDC initially, I believe, was Disease Detective. And lastly, let me remind any of you that have not yet tuned into any of the webinars as part of the Think for Yourself webinar series that you can find out about them via my Twitter handle, which is at Mantramani, or my LinkedIn profile, or you can subscribe to the mailing list for the Think for Yourself webinar as well as podcast series, and you can do that at www.tinyletter.com slash Again, it's www.tinyletter.com slash Thanks very much, and I hope you enjoy the following interview. Uh, I welcome any and all feedback you might have for me as well. Okay, uh, I think in the interest of time, we should probably get started now. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining uh, this first webinar of the Think for Yourself webinar series. I am absolutely thrilled to be here today with uh, Dr. Ali Khan. Uh, Dr. Khan, as some of you have read uh, in the introduction that I sent around with the invitation, uh, is the Dean of the College of Public Health at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Uh, and he's uh, an author of a book. Uh, the book, actually, I have a copy of it here. I don't know if everyone can see it, but it's uh, the, uh, the Next Pandemic, uh, a fabulous uh, read if anyone wants to get up to speed on pandemics and pandemic risk. Uh, and he's a wonderful human being to talk to. I've had the pleasure of speaking with him in his office in Nebraska, over the phone, over webinars or what have you. Uh, and I'm thrilled to be able to have this conversation here today. Uh, before we begin, let me just uh, share a little bit. Uh, this series uh, really is intended to illustrate some of the ideas I have in my forthcoming book, about uh, thinking for yourself. Really, it's about how do you work with experts and how do you navigate uncertainty? And particularly, how do you tap into the right form of expertise at the right time? And you know, given the, the dynamics of the world today and the overarching global public health concerns that many of us feel and see and witness and, uh, and, and palpably experience every day, I could think of no better person uh, to have a conversation with today than with Dr. Khan. Um, like I said, he is the Dean of the College of Public Health at the University of Nebraska, the author of this book, The Next Pandemic, uh, and is uh, perhaps one of the country's leading thinkers uh, on pandemics, epidemics, and global public health. Uh, and so I'm absolutely thrilled to have Dr. Khan with us today. Uh, and so, uh, Dr. Khan, are you here? Let's see if your video uh, works. I'm going to stop the share and move over, over to you. And there he is. Wonderful. Hi, Ali. Thanks for joining hey. me. Hey, Vikram, thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, so listen, I am thrilled to have you here. Uh, we have uh, about 100 of my friends, <laughs> colleagues, business associates, and what have you joining us uh, from around the world. We have some folks from Australia, some from uh, some early risers in Australia, some, uh, some people that are up late in uh, Europe, uh, some folks in Africa, and then a bunch of folks all over the United States here. Excellent. Uh, so uh, I'm not going to waste any time on talking about your impressive uh, background and your bio, uh, other than to just say that for those that are listening, uh, Dr. Khan spent more than 20 years at the CDC uh, and was responsible for a couple of key things while there. One of them was he was a disease detective and chased down virtually every contagious, scary disease you might imagine in the world. In fact, I'm not sure how, I'm sure his wife quarantines him when he returns <laughs> from having seen Ebola, MERS, uh, SARS, uh, Hunter virus, measles, uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. 
Um, but today, uh, I'm excited to share uh, some some of my conversation with him with all of you. Uh, but before we begin, uh, Ali, any thoughts you want to use to just sort of set the table? Obviously, we're in what appears to be an unprecedented time, for sure, in a social and economic dynamic, but also from a medical perspective. And so everyone on the, the call, I am sure, is very interested in hearing your sort of laying of the groundwork, if you will. Oh, thank you, Vikram, and uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation over the next hour. Uh, so I think you actually framed it perfectly. It's a this is really about uncertainty, and I think we're going to talk about a lot of the uncertainty uh, in the situation, from how the disease emerged to the continuing questions now about what does recovery potentially look like and what does the future look like uh, with this disease. But let me share some thoughts with people. Uh, so the first is, uh, believe it or not, this isn't the worst pandemic we imagined. So sort of in terms of framing this outbreak in a context. So what kept people up at night was actually an influenza pandemic and the 1918 influenza pandemic that we were all reading about back when avian influenza scared everybody in 2005, 2006, uh, the 1918 pandemic killed 750,000 people back then. So that's the big one. So, you know, think about the social disruption we've had from this outbreak with 50,000 deaths, what will likely be 50 to 60,000 deaths compared to what it could have been with, uh, with an influenza pandemic. The second thought I had was that a lot of people have been saying, oh, look at this event, it was completely unprecedented. And I go, wait, did we forget 2003 when we had a SARS outbreak that spread worldwide? So it's, it's not like we hadn't seen this before and we couldn't have been prepared for this. And the last point I think is all yours, right? Which is that when I talk about influ when I talk about pandemics and infectious diseases, you know, yes, there's medical consequences. So this disease, you know, if you happen to be elderly, if you happen to have chronic conditions, it's not good for you. It's clearly not good for a non-prepared health system, but it actually exposes every weakness you have in your political system, in your societal safety nets, um, in your economic systems. I mean, this, does, this disease just exposes every weakness in those systems. And so I'm in, in that way, I'm looking forward to hear from you about what you think about how this virus just so, sort of like scrubs away all those weaknesses. And you're like, oh, you don't have sick leave. Well, guess what that means? Or you don't have you know, societal equity. Well, guess what that means in terms of who gets sick? Sure. Sure. Obviously, a, a huge political, social, and uh, uh, you know, larger societal dynamic at work here. Uh, but uh, listen, so actually, it's very interesting because I remember uh, when we were when we first had our conversation uh, about the coronavirus epidemic in your office there. I guess it was about six weeks ago. Uh, you described it as this is basically SARS. Um, albeit with a little novel characteristic. So, so connect the dots for me there, and then also help me understand what are the implications, if any, from a public health perspective for coming up with a new name? Did this change China's dynamics vis-a-vis -vis the World Health Organization? Did it change perhaps the lockdown nature of it or what have you? So yeah, this was an interesting conversation. I still think we should, we should have called this SARS. So SARS stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. This was the name to the disease that we gave uh, back in 2003 that did essentially the same exact thing. And I'll talk about the differences. So it emerged in China uh, around the same time of year, October, November, December, went to Hong Kong. And then there was an event we call these super spreading events at the Hotel Metropole. And then disease was spread from, from Hong Kong worldwide. The world came together and sort of stamped that down. Um, that SARS was mainly transmitted within healthcare settings, although there was some community transmission, and we were able to sort of put that back in the box over six months or so. This version, again, bat-borne disease, uh, probably not uh, in a wet market, same sort of story, showed up in China, disease amongst healthcare workers, uh, starting to spread within the community, a little different. Uh, in that unlike SARS, uh, this one, this new coronavirus, same type of virus, you tend to get uh, in, you tend to expose people and get them infected 
two, 48 hours before you're sick. Uh, so the other, the original SARS, what I, I call that classic SARS, I call this new SARS. So the classic SARS, you tended to infect people as you got sicker. This one, you infect them before you get sick. Think measles. People yeah. get, you, you infect people before you have measles. Um, and it's probably a little bit more infectious. Um, so it's a, the disease is a little bit different, which is why it's harder to stamp out, obviously. But the, uh, but the whole naming thing. So if China, you know, back in December, there was two separate labs where, uh, where physicians had sent these out because they had this novel unexplained respiratory illness. And they sent this out for what's called uh, full sequencing of, of whatever was in there. And these two labs came back and said, hello, you have a novel coronavirus that looks like SARS. And if the Chinese at that point has, you know, waved a big flag and said, hello, SARS, the whole world would have gone, oh my gosh, we've got SARS, we need to do something, right? Because, you know, we know what had happened with SARS in Toronto, people have horrific memories of what happened in SARS. The people, you know, you say SARS in Singapore and people freak. And the reason um, South Korea had a wonderful response to this COVID-19 was because SARS also, uh, this same family of viruses causes MERS, which was caused a horrible outbreak in South Korea. So if we had just called it SARS from day one. I think everybody would have immediately gone into battle mode Sure. But instead, the story was, no, this is a novel coronavirus. It's not SARS. And for many, for, for way too long, there was no human-to-human transmission, not anything to worry about. The, so I think we lost valuable time not calling it SARS. And do you think any of this has to do with intent? Or do you think this was actual something novel that the Chinese were struggling to define? Or do you think they actually were thinking, hold on a second, this will bring the light onto our public health system in perhaps a bad way? It's, uh, you know, it, all I can say is in the end, when it came time to, even though the, the Chinese were successful and WHO called it um, coronavirus infectious disease 19, the people completely separated from the politics called the virus SARS coronavirus 2. Yep. Okay. There you go. Need I, I say more? Yeah, no, I understand. <laughs> you know, while we're, on the, while we're on the topic of the World Health Organization uh, and sort of, uh, you know, they didn't call this a pandemic for some, ex for some extra period of time. Why? Okay, so... No, so let's not even get to the pandemic, right? They failed to call this a public health emergency of international concern for way too long. Um, they should have called this a, what's called a PHIC, a public health emergency of international concern. They should have called it that in the first week of January, first 10 days of January. But towards the end of January, they called a meeting to consider calling it a PHIC. And the first meeting said, nah, we don't think this is a public health emergency of international concern. And all of us who are public health practitioners were floored. Like, how can you not call this a public health emergency of international concern? And then they met back a couple of days later and said, yes, this is a public health emergency of international concern. So they, so that was the first mistake, right? They should have way earlier called this a public health emergency of international concern. And then, of course, they waited way too long to call it a pandemic. So, the, you know, to be a pandemic, you essentially need to be causing disease on two different continents at the same time. So it met that criteria already in February. So I don't understand why they failed to call it a pandemic for way too long. Again, I think they should have been raising the flag about how serious this was. And in the language from WHO, they were saying it was serious, but they weren't sort of pulling the levers that were saying they were the real levers, like this is a PHIC, this is a pandemic. They weren't pulling those levers that were saying it was serious, as opposed to the language that said, you know, be prepared, get ready for this. You know, so the language kind of said it was serious, but not the levers that they should have been pulling. Gotcha. So a lot of the folks on this webinar probably have a finance-oriented background, and they tend to think 
in terms of money flows. Uh, and, you know, obviously the Chinese have had a greater influence on the World Health Organization budget than in the past. And in fact, given the recent news that we've had uh, here recently with President Trump last night defunding, uh, or at least announcing to defund the World Health Organization in the midst of this pandemic, uh, is there anything there? I mean, you've been involved in the highest circles of, of global public health. Uh, anything there on the budgetary sort of influence on what you call a disease? So. Uh yeah, I, I sit on the steering committee for the Global Outbreak Alert and Response Network for WHO. So, uh, so uh, China's contribution is actually, I think, a tenth of the U.S.'s contribution. Their contribution isn't as large as the U.S. The U.S. U.S. has a four hundred and fifty to five hundred fifty million dollar contribution to the six billion dollar budget. So we make a we have a significant contribution uh, to WHO and WHO operations. Um, and I do know that the president suspended. Uh, U.S. contributions to WHO, and I must say, uh, despite the missteps of WHO, which which need to be reviewed in, in after action once this is done, that's highly unfortunate because they are the global public health agency, uh, and you don't want to suspend funds to the global public health agency in the midst of responding to a public health emergency worldwide, right? Yeah. And uh, again, despite some of these missteps, they have been fabulous in supporting low and middle income countries all over the world. Their guidance has been excellent, their protocols, and they're, and they're also doing a global study looking at therapeutics right now. So uh, from a technical standpoint, they have been spot on. And I need to give credit to Mike Ryan, who has been the chief scientist for this event. You know, while many other people were saying this is just flu, let it go through the community, uh, he, he held fast, even in the the deepest, darkest days to say, no, you know, please, you know, ramp up testing, isolate these cases, quarantine the contacts, try to get your case numbers down. Do not just let this spread widely throughout your community. And you'll notice there's been a shift in the U.S. Everybody all of a sudden has gone away from the flu thinking here in the U.S. We've gone away and everybody now again is saying, yep, we need to test, you know, isolate cases and quarantine contacts. So we've gone back to WHO's position now. Yeah, so obviously the, the overarching question on the minds of everyone I've talked to is, okay, where you just went with the conversation, which is how do we get back to normal? How do we, go, is it testing? Is it this quarantine? Is it the tracing? It's sort of, what is it? How far till a treatment? We'd love your opinion. I think a lot of people want to hear your answer to this question. So um, I tell people that from that, while this is one global pandemic, it's 185 different epidemics in each country. And within a country, it's 100 different outbreaks. And I say that because every country is at a different phase, every region, every country is at a different phase. And within a country, we're all individually at a different place within our country. And people recognize that here in the United States, people in Australia, all of your guests recognize, they can look around and go, yeah, countries are at different phases. So Asia, where this started, is clearly in a different phase, right? So China, even Wuhan, you know, after 75 day lockdown, they're like, oh, okay, Wuhan is open now. Um, I'm seeing now reports, um, in Europe, Austria, Germany, et cetera, are tentatively starting to open up uh, right now. So Europe's starting to open up right now, uh, little by little, social distancing, masks, et cetera. So, but they're slowly starting to open up. And so we're next, right? So the, the outbreak essentially, I tell people it went from China to Southeast Asia. It went to Iran, which seated the Middle East, and it went to Italy, which seeded Europe and the and America, right, and the rest of the world, and and uh, um, South America. So uh, so Southeast Asia. So we've done Asia, we've done Europe, and now it's our turn. So all all I tell my friends is look at what Europe's doing, and in two to three weeks we'll be doing what Europe is doing. So my guess is in May, uh, Vikram, uh, we will be doing what our friends are, what our friends in Europe are doing. We'll slowly start opening up again at that point. But to make that happen, uh, there's a couple of things we need to do. So we need to first make sure that case counts are going down in the United States, which is reasonable, right? We wanna to try to make sure people are protected. 
We want to make sure we have enough testing capability and that we're uh, isolating cases, uh, taking quarantine contacts. We want to make sure that our healthcare system is ready for any surge, and that includes protecting healthcare workers. I saw some disturbing news today that maybe 6,000 healthcare workers in the United States uh, had been infected, at least on a first count, which means that isn't the total of how many were infected. Uh, Long-term care facilities are still going to be a problem for us. Uh, and a good strategy on how to take care of hotspots, what happens in workplaces. So anybody on your call shouldn't be surprised if they find that people are monitoring temperatures when you come to workplaces or, you know, or handing out gloves or, you know, social distancing in workplaces. I, I think this is probably going to be the new normal uh, until we either get a vaccine or we get cases so low that potentially it's gone. Gotcha. And, and speaking of vaccine, uh, any thoughts? I mean, I know there's lots of efforts on this endeavor, uh, but, uh, you know, just curious what you think. So uh, good news on that, thanks to lots of global partners. So there's, there's lots of candidates. There's actually over 50 to 70 different candidates. But candidates aside, I believe there's three different vaccines that have actually made it into somebody's arm right now. Uh, which is the good news. So that means 12 to 18 months away for these studies because you have to be meticulous about those. So 12 to 18 months away to see if any of these candidates really pass go to be a viable vaccine. I always am cautious because, you know, it's still 12 to 18 months away for the for the uh, HIV vaccine, I would like for people also. So there's some there's some entities that we never really could get a good vaccine for, and we have some experience with a previous SARS vaccine that the vaccine actually made the disease worse if you got it. So we we've got to be cautious, but that's at best we're 12 to 18 months away for a vaccine. Gotcha. So speaking of social distancing in the workplace and some of the dynamics, which, you know, some of us are getting used to at this stage, uh, I noticed that earlier, I think it was either last night or today, you tweeted something from The Lancet about social distancing in the schools um, and that there, there were some, uh, some, some confusing data points, perhaps, is the best way to say it. Uh, Shed some light on that because a lot of folks have kids at home trying to self, uh, you know, trying to homeschool de facto. Yes. Uh, this is decreasing economic productivity. I know in my household that's true. Uh, but, um, you know, curious what you have to say about social distancing, schools, education, and maybe some implications if you were a governor of a state, would you open schools? Right. So I think the first thing I have to say is every parent now appreciates that teachers' pays need to be doubled or tripled. Absolutely. Number one, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, so, uh, the data for the role of school closures in uh, preventing community transmission in um, COVID-19 is still relatively um, immature or tentative. Um, so uh, we know it works for influenza, no doubt about it. It does work for influenza. Uh, it's not clear whether or not it works for COVID because children aren't as likely to be infected and we have lots of data that says that's true uh, with the COVID-19. Uh, they're rarely infected actually. And if they're infected, they're very mildly uh, infected. So there's that one piece of uh, data that they may not play a role. But you're quite right that for our economy to restart, we need kids to go back to school. Uh, so there's how Europe has been approaching this and how parts of Southeast Asia are approaching this is, how do you get kids back to school in a more protected environment that does not have that sort of decreases a lot of the grouping that happens? So club sports, assemblies, you know, other activities that sort of bunches them together. You sort of try to uh, um, get rid of some of those and try to distance them a little bit farther apart within classrooms, um, maybe ways to allow some of this to start up again. Sure. Sure. Yeah. No, that, I think that's the hope for a lot of <laughs> parents with kids at home. Uh, so uh, speaking of uh, speaking of changes to sort of populations, etc. How about changes in weather? We all are hearing that possibly warmer climates and we're entering the spring. You know, the 1918 pandemic, you sort of had a lull come the warmer weather. I, you know, we had second wave. I'm going to come back to that. Uh, but before we discuss the possibility of a second wave, does the warmer weather 
uh, offer any sort of hope here? So again, um, with the no so there's four known uh, coronavirus, human coronaviruses already. They call the, cause the common cold. And those are seasonal. So if you look at those, you realize that they're more in the summer. They're more in the winter. They go away in the summer. Uh, it's too early to say if that's true for this virus. It, wasn't, it isn't true for SARS. It wasn't true for MERS. Uh, and actually, right now, the weather is quite lovely in Singapore. And yeah. they seem to have no trouble having virus, having disease there. Mm. Uh, so I think it's a little too early in parts of Australia where they've had cases and uh, other parts of Southeast Asia. So I think it's a little too early to say that the summer is the, the warm weather is the solution for us. Yeah. And then uh, what about, I mean, I have to ask because it's on the minds of a lot of folks, uh, a second wave, right? I mean, the 1918 pandemic, uh, which by the way, I want to also come back to the fact that it's a coincidental, the hundred year wave. I've been sort of wondering <laughs> if there's anything to do with hundred. A couple of people have texted me questions. Can you ask if this is an every hundred year thing? <laughs> get through this, are we good for another hundred years? <laughs> which I sadly don't think to be the case, but let's talk about the waves. So as we go back uh, and, and, you know, we all are hearing about herd immunity and we're hearing about the potential treatments and this, et cetera, but, but talk to me about the risks of going back. Let's assume the rates drop off. Let's assume that things happen and we're ready to reopen, schools reopen, and then we go back starting in May or June here. So uh, all, all of your friends and colleagues who are asking you about second wave, it's a very legitimate concern because uh, if, if you think about what social distancing does, so uh, for a communicable disease, you need to have contact with somebody else. So technically, if you could freeze everybody in place so they don't touch somebody for two weeks, the disease would go away, right? And that's impossible, obviously. So what we've done is we've decreased spread of the disease by people not coming in contact with others. So the moment we relax those social distancing guidelines, people start coming in contact with each other. And then what happens is you start getting community transmission happening again within the community. And then if you're not finding those cases, that community transmission will build in the community. And then as that builds and builds, you will then hit a threshold where you get enough cases to start getting your second wave. Now, the, in what we can do in this case is, I can remind your audiences, even though they didn't see it, that's what happened in New York City. So you saw all these cases in New York City, but when you looked at the genomic data, probably the first case came, the cases that were problematic came from Italy six weeks before you started to see the wave of cases that showed up that were problematic in the community. So we've, we've had cases in the US from January, February, March that were sort of building up in the community and then slowly peaked. Then, you know, slowly we got, well, then slowly and unfortunately rapidly peaked uh, in, in March, April. So that's essentially what would happen again. You, uh, you release social distancing, cases build up in the community, and then you get this secondary peak again. Not okay. as high, but you get another peak. So not as high. I mean, that's the yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Not as high, but you get another peak. Okay. Um, because one of the concerns is some of the data being thrown around about 1918 was actually more people died. Uh, in the fall. And I know that's complicated with military transmission and sort of battle lines, et cetera, but, but your anticipation is the peak would be less. The, the modeling data suggests that the peak would be less. Uh, influenza is obviously not SARS, so I want to be very careful that we don't make that comparison. Also about the 100 years, this is a different, it may be 100 years later, but this is a different disease. It's not, it's, yeah. it's fortunate, actually, I would say it's fortunately not influenza because a true influenza pandemic would be a completely different uh, scenario. Uh, and we do have tools available to us to decrease deaths. Uh, and then again, we really don't know what happened with this second peak with influenza, uh, why there was that second deadlier wave. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, you know, one of the things that I've been reading a little bit about Ali, and, I've, and, and I think others have been reading too, is there are some cases where you've had people that had uh, novel coronavirus, in theory, recover and then relapse, uh, what you're hearing about in Korea. Yeah. Is this a risk? I mean, uh, this is like, okay, we've got these people leaving, and I live in the Boston area, they leave Mass General, they've recovered, we're all clapping, they're off to go. Are they still vulnerable? Yeah, this is, this, actually, your question is brilliant, and you don't realize it because you're asking 
three or four different questions at the same time. Okay. Uh, Unintentional brilliance, I'll take it. <laughs> you didn't know that because you're also asking the question which people are posing, which is if I if I have antibodies that say I'm I'm I've had the disease, does that mean I'm immune? Do I have my little immunity certificate? And can I go, you know, I can go around and not be at risk. So there's in South Korea, they now have 114 individuals who supposedly had the disease, were cured, and then again had a lab results suggesting that they were reinfected or were positive again. We don't know if it was reinfection. So the, there's a number of reasons that could happen. The first could be the lab test was wrong. Either the first one or the second one was wrong. So there's a lab issue, there's a lab issue somewhere. The second is reactivation. So you were infected um, and then somehow the virus was dormant or something and it came back out again. So that would be a reactive, that would be a reactivation scenario. Unlikely these viruses don't do that, but that's a possibility. Um, the third possibility is, and we see this with our patients, which is that they're right at the threshold of positive. So they could, uh, um, because we do uh, a nucleic acid test on them. And if you're right at the cutoff value of being positive, you can be negative one day, positive the next day, negative two days, the positive the next day. So if you're right at the threshold, one day your test is negative, the next day your test is positive, but, but it's really meaningless because it just means you're at the threshold. And this, these tests aren't really measuring virus for the most part, they're just, they're just measuring uh, residual genetic material that's in your body. Gotcha. Okay. So that's, that's three usual reasons for why these people were positive and, uh, and then maybe positive again. But that leads into the bigger question to me about if you have, an so if, if you've recovered and you have antibodies and some data suggests that maybe one third of people do not have evidence of an immune response. So let's say you do have an immune response. Well, does that mean you are immune? How long are you immune? What is the right, what is the right, there's, you have lots of different types of antibodies in your body, which is the right one to measure, which is the right test to measure it with. And I think that matters because if you're a healthcare worker and I tell you, you know, Vikram, you have, you have antibodies, you're good to go. And you go, well, maybe I don't need my mask to be on so tight. Maybe I don't need my shield. Do you know what I mean? I, I wouldn't want to put you at risk because you may actually not be immune, <laughs> right? So I think we need some more good data that's, uh, and challenge studies probably that say, you know, before we start handing out immunity certificates, we really know that this person is immune and how long are they immune for? Sure, sure. Um, okay, uh, I wanna switch gears a little bit here, Ali, because we've had a couple of questions sent to me about uh, bioterrorism and perhaps the risk thereof. So sure. uh, for those of you listening to this webinar, uh, Ali was actually one of the founders of the Bioterrorism Preparedness and Response Program at the CDC. Uh, he formed that group at the CDC in 1999. Uh, in 2002, I think it was, during the anthrax, uh, or 2001, uh, fall of 2001, the anthrax attacks on the United States Congress. Uh, Ali was one of the first responders, effectively, in Tom Daschle's office, trying to figure out the spores, what happened. Uh, so he's got some expertise here. Uh, the question is, how could we? figure out, is there a medical way to understand if this possibly was at all bioterrorism? Uh, intentional, unintentional, whether, it, is there a way to trace it or tell? What's the process for identifying it? Because no one's gonna stand up and say, hey, uh, excuse me, Ollie, excuse me, CDC, we just attacked you. Yeah, should we just, just uh, I know where this is coming from. This is coming from the Wuhan, Wuhan lab theory. I know exactly where this question is coming from. I'm not sure where, but sure. That sounds. <laughs> <coughs> there's a there's a lab in Wuhan that studies coronaviruses that actually has NIH funding. Uh, has and has there are actually many labs in the worldwide that study coronaviruses um, because of their potential to cause these types of uh, diseases. So uh, all I can say to people who are concerned about whether or not this was genetically engineered is that there's lots of excellent examples in animals of these viruses that you don't have to jump to 
another conclusion for how people got infected, gotcha. right? So it's, you can never prove the negative, but if you look at pangolin, Malaysian pangolins that were um, um, being smuggled into China and then picked up in anti-smuggling operations, those viruses are 93 to 96% similar to the, to the COVID-19 SARS co-virus two that we're seeing. So, the, so there's enough similar viruses in nature that you don't need to postulate that somehow this was created in a lab. Mother, mother, I tell people, uh, not, you know, bioterrorism does happen. We know the Russians and other countries have made lots of biologic agents in the past, but mother nature is really good bioterrorists. Sure, sure. Well, I love the line that you use a lot in your uh, book, etc., which is, it's not very concerning to you for a terrorist trying to become a biologist, but far more concerning to have a biologist turn into a terrorist. terrorist absolutely. Because of the, uh, the existence already in nature, if you will. Uh, so let's, uh, let's go back to the labeling. At the, while we're talking, moving off of the bioterrorism logic, but thinking about information flow, uh, Chinese called this a state secret. They clamped it down. You know, they called the first person who raised his hand was spreading rumors, uh, you know, et cetera. What would, where, do a little what if hypothesis for me here. What if that hadn't happened and we clamped it down? Where would we be? Would we all be locked down still? Would it still be done now? I don't think so. I, I think, I really think if information had moved a lot faster. So if, 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 as I said, the moment the gene sequencing had been done in uh, December, if the Chinese had announced two separate labs had found a brand new coronavirus causing atypical pneumonia with person-to-person -person spread, in not just in the hospitals, but in the community, uh, people would have locked down borders worldwide. They would have spun up testing and we would have all likely been in a better position. And I don't want to say that there would have been no secondary transmission into other countries, but clearly, you know, we, in that circumstance, weeks would have mattered because that would have been what it would have taken to get your lab testing online, you know, and we know this because we know how fast South Korea worked to get their lab testing uh, online. So, you know, in a, in a pandemic situation, every day matters. Sure. Uh, so those, ex those, those extra days would have really been valuable to the world to have had those genetics, had that genetic sequencing to be, to be better prepared. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I have dozens and dozens of questions here. So I'm going to just start going through them one by sure. one. Uh, sure. Glad first, to. first one is, uh, it seems that people who have been inoculated against tuberculosis seems to have a higher uh, or a lower rate of uh, uh, issues. <coughs> Anything there with this BCG vaccination? Is there a possibility that we are not looking in the right place that actually just re-inoculating for tuberculosis could in fact reduce spread? Uh, uh, very good question. Uh, there's insufficient data to suggest that we should be re-inoculating everybody against tuberculosis. We know there's cases occurring in lots of parts of Southeast Asia where everybody already is inoculated against tuberculosis. BCG okay. is actually part of the routine uh, childhood vaccination schedule. However, uh, there's a thread of truth in that. So there's a study ongoing in Australia, and I think uh, one site in the U.S. where they're doing it as a trial of putting uh, using BCG to see whether or not it would be effective. Okay. So in a clinical trial, I think it's a great thing to try in a clinical trial. And also the malaria medication combination with antibiotics. Any comments on that? So uh, again, uh, I, something that I would only use in a clinical trial, especially because the we know that this is a hydrochloroquine and chloroquine. Uh, we know that there's heart complications associated with it, especially, unfortunately, if you combine it with another antibiotic, which is called azithromycin, which also has heart complications with it. Uh, it's been, there have been 43 case reports in France. Multiple hospitals have actually stopped using it. Here in the United States, less than a third of clinicians use it anymore because of the heart complications. I think this is best studied as it is currently studied in a clinical trial amongst hospitalized patients. And then let's make a decision about that. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go on to what, uh, this is a pretty interesting question. I wouldn't have thought about it myself. Uh, we sometimes hear about superbugs that are resistant to antibiotics. Can bacteria cause the next global pandemic? 
pandemic, or is it really only viruses that can cause such widespread problems? Uh, so bacteria can absolutely cause, I mean, uh, if you think about gonorrheal illness worldwide, I guess it depends on the bacteria. If you think about many of the superbugs worldwide, yeah, so the uh, C. difficile, strep, yeah, of course, it could be, it, it could be uh, bacterial illness worldwide. I guess if you think about the plague worldwide, cholera worldwide. Uh, so we've had pandemics that have not been due to viruses. We've had pandemics that have been due to bacteria in the past. Okay. Uh, next question. Can you comment on the potential for the FDA's emergency use authorization? I don't know what that explicitly means, but I'm hoping you do. <laughs> so um, I'm not sure EUA for what. Is it for, I would have to know if somebody's talking about drugs or if they're talking about diagnostic testing. So if somebody can okay. give you a couple of more details, EUAs, it could either be for drugs or it could be for diagnostic testing. I don't know what, the, what they're asking about EUA for. Okay, fine. Let's keep going because there's so many. Okay. Those recovered still infect others weeks later. No. If you're recovered and you have no more virus in you, you can't infect, you're, you're good to go. If you don't have any more virus in you, you're good to go. But you can still be possibly reinfected. That's the, un that's the uncertainty. That's the uncertainty. My guess is that once you've recovered, at least for a short time, you are not infectious, nor are you going to get reinfected. What I don't know is how long is that? Six months, three months, six months, a year. That piece, I don't think we know yet. But uh, at least for some short while after you have recovered, you probably are no longer infectious nor able to get reinfected. Okay, uh, another question. Dr. Khan, thank you for sharing your insights. Following up on schools, based on the outlook you outlined, if you were a university president, would you reopen your campus and dorms in September, earlier, or later? So I, I feel very comfortable about September, to be honest with you. Okay. Uh, uh, I don't feel as comfortable anything closer. So people are saying, let's open in May. I think unless we have some of the things I outlined earlier, so I'm confident we've got, you know, testing underway. You know, I've talked about isolation, contact tracing, vulnerable populations, hots. Let's make sure our public health and healthcare infrastructure is ready to go. Uh, and then I'd feel more popular to say, and, and, you know, and then we have all the systems in place and in daycares and businesses, then I'd be like, yeah, we're good to go. But I don't think, I don't think I can, I don't think, I know we are not ready on May 1st to say, go back to school May 1st. We, okay. We're not ready. Gotcha. Here's a personal one that came in. I am awaiting results for my blood test for COVID-19. I want to know if he was, this is a person who was in China in January uh, and had a cold there. If it, you know, if he has antibodies or proteins, uh, is there any way that he could donate blood? Is there a way that, you know, he could potentially be a spreader if he had it with them still, uh, if he never got symptomatic, et cetera? Very clinical, but nevertheless, I figured I'd ask it because it was- Don't worry. So, uh, sir, uh, if you have antibodies, it probably means you, depending on the test, because there's all sorts of tests out there. So I'm going to assume you got a good one. Uh, it means you probably were infected when you were in, uh, where, when you were in, um, China in January. And there's actually a website you can go to uh, that connects you to hospitals who may want your plasma. Uh, and you can look that and you can look that you can Google that. Okay, gotcha. So the person who submitted the, uh, the uh, FDA emergency use authorization has come up and said vaccine or therapeutics. Sorry, it's a question from my husband. Oops, I'm not sure I was supposed to read that. <laughs> uh, that's okay. So, <coughs> so there are, they are, there are EUAs for drugs. So remdesivir, for example, there's an EUA for the use of this antiviral currently, and it's under. It, there's a trial for it in the U.S. right now under an, under an EUA uh, currently, and there's EUAs currently for a number of different vaccines that are going into people. So yes, for the individual who sent you that message, there are a number of drug trials and vaccine trials under EUA and. Uh, individuals, if they're hospitalized at the right place or are being seen in the right setting, can be part of those trials. Uh, with the caution that all of those trials, for the most part, depending on where they are, are either randomized, at least for the drug trials, are randomized currently. Gotcha. Um, so here's another question that's come in. It says, uh, my question is as follows. Data from the Diamond Princess 
and more recently from New York, seem to suggest that the early data from China suggesting that there are very clear high-risk groups, uh, that seems to be valid. It seems as though co comorbidity, heart disease, respiratory, diabetes, cancer, obesity, et cetera, and age are the key indicators of who is hospitalized and who is subject to mortal risk. Why are we not focusing on isolating those high-risk individuals with government programs being focused on those groups as opposed to addressing an uh, economy-wide basis? That's a really good question. So when you run the numbers, that's 40% of America. So people have- existing pre-existing conditions, if you will. Yes. So people have said, let's just ask the elderly to stay home. So I'm like, okay, what, does that start at 55? Okay, let's say it starts at 65. So I tell everybody 65 and older to stay at home. And then I say, okay, if you have diabetes, heart disease, um, chronic renal disease, uh, you know, COPD, all of those people, I tell you to stay home also. So by the time I'm done with everybody, I've, uh, about 40 plus percent of America, I say stay at home. So it becomes a very big number. Yeah, yeah, no, that's very uh... fast. And then I have to remind people that in addition to the high risk group, we do see a, a disease occasionally, uh, hospitalization, ICU admissions and deaths amongst people who have no underlying disease. Gotcha, gotcha. Here's another question that just came in, uh, Ali, that says, what if this uh, disease actually uh, morphs? What if there's some uh, permutations or mutations in the, in the virus here as it replicates and stays uh, active among humans? Is there a risk this gets worse? What's the like, worst case scenario of this uh, coronavirus disease playing out? Uh, so that's always a very good question. Uh, and RNA viruses are known uh, to always be continuing continuously mutating. However, not at a rate that really has implications on our human scale uh, to be problematic. And we know that from the MERS virus, which has been for many years in, in um, Saudi Arabia and the Middle East right now. So yes, you can dream up all sorts of scenarios where it could get worse, uh, but not ones that worry me. Uh, as much as it's, you know, it's pretty bad right now, how much worse do you want it to get really? So... Sure. Okay. This one I think is from, uh, this one might be from one of our younger uh, listeners or younger viewers said, uh, you know, Dr. Khan, you've traveled to some of the scariest places in the world, Africa for Ebola, Asia for SARS and other places. How are you grappling with and understanding the risks of running out of toilet paper? <laughs> That's a great question. Oh, I know. <laughs> so I, I actually think that might have been my son who put this. Who did that? you said who asked. <laughs> actually, it, it, it's actually a fair. Uh, so I'd love to hear your response first so that we get the <laughs> response. To uh, so that's what uh, I'll let you think about that. But I do remember from uh, from the, from your book, you talked about while SARS was really rearing its ugly head, that you called your wife and told her to go get three months of goods and sort of get food and supplies for home. Uh, so that's so, a big achievement, right? I mean, the, the toilet paper aside, how are you thinking about disruption to life? So um, SARS actually worried me, and uh, it turns out that uh, the SARS, new, new SARS, uh, obviously worries me too. Um, um, so I've always preached preparedness. Uh, so for your son, uh, another good example why people should always be prepared for unexpected events and make sure that they have appropriate supplies at their home to take care of themselves. Because if something happens, you wanna make sure that first responders go to individuals who have not been able to, have, or did not have the means or are unable to take care of themselves and you have the ability to take care of yourself and then potentially support others. So I always like to make sure that I, have here in the US that I'm able to take care of myself. But remind your son that I go to places in the world where there is no toilet paper. Sure, I'm sure. <laughs> I understand that. Okay. Uh, here's a question that came up <coughs> crossing the coast, if you will. He says, I've heard that the West Coast has less fatalities than the East Coast. The theory is that the West Coast is infected with the Asian strain and the East is from Europe. Europe's strain is more lethal. Comments? Uh, I don't, uh, so the, date, the data doesn't support that yet. So yes, there's actually 
if you start uh, looking at the genetics, it looks like there's probably three separate strains. And I'm not sure, I think it may be too early to call them three separate strains. Maybe there's three separate lineages out there, but there's no data that supports that these lineages are associated with different levels of case fatality at this point. Um, we actually, Vikram, don't know why the West Coast did not have severe disease as New York City. But I would ask, I would ask, challenge your audience to say, why no, why San, why San Antonio, right? Why no cases or not, there's no cases, but you know what I mean? Large metropolitan area, international airport, people from all over the world. Why did San Antonio not become a hotspot or Chicago, right? Uh, so there's a lot about this disease we still do not know. And currently, that's my major concern about this disease, which is what's the next hotspot? Right? Is it rural areas? Is it does you know does this does this settle down for a while and the next thing we know someplace in Texas flares up? I, there's way too many unknowns. Yeah, sure. Okay, uh, lots of questions. So everyone, I'm going to sort of try to wrap this up in the next uh, sort of five to ten minutes. So uh, if you have any more questions, please put them in the Q and A, and I'll and I'll try to combine them if possible. Uh, but let me run through a couple quickly here. Sure. Dr. Khan, uh, does, do you have any recommendations for dentists and how to handle seeing patients due to the worries about the handpiece aerosols? I guess it aerosolizes uh, saliva or something. I don't know. Yeah, no, and the, the dentists are absolutely spot on. So we have, uh, with SARS and now with COVID-19, we have really good examples of aerosol transmission. So you actually have to put force into the virus to aerosolize it. And if you do, you can get secondary transmission. And we've seen people uh, many floors above each other via plumbing get infected but it doesn't normally happen. So you need to put force into it. So your question is spot on is when you're putting force into somebody's mouth with air that you could aerosol virus. And we do in our experimental studies, we do see aerosols uh, far out. So until you know there's a low risk within the community, you would be, have to be very careful about procedures that cause aerosols within your practice. Uh, and you'd have to think about what measures are you taking in your practice to minimize people who are sick and then to protect yourself, obviously, from aerosols more than you currently do. Sure, okay. Um, here you go. This is a, a question that I don't know how to answer, but that's why I have you here. I heard <laughs> that COVID-19 deaths are financially more lucrative to hospitals, which is why it is listed as cause of death when in fact it is just a complication. Does this account for the higher death count, in your opinion? Okay, that, I don't even understand how to, what that means. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Okay, uh, but uh, let me say that the number of deaths in the U.S. currently are markedly being undercounted because we're not testing every person in the U.S. who has died. And the true death count will come out when we look at the difference between the number of people who should have died at this time of year and the number of people who did die. And that the difference will tell us what the true deaths happened uh, in New York City and the rest of the US. So the numbers you're currently seeing are really a gross underestimation. And that's just from COVID. Forget yeah. about the people who have other conditions who failed to come to the ER and the hospitals uh, because they were so concerned about illness. So these numbers actually are probably a gross underestimate of what's going on. Gotcha. Okay. Um, do you think the continued operation of wet markets in China uh, would place the world under increased risk of additional deadly viruses? Yes. Pressure to should we should there be pressure yes. to close? Yes, that's that's an, that is an easy one. Okay, and is no that wet markets? And, and does that have to do with? The, so this is a question that I find interesting. You know, there's disproportionate zoonotic jumping from bats, rats, apes, and maybe birds. Why is that? Are those why are why are those the reservoirs from which we have disproportionate viruses that come and are, are particularly lethal? Because those are the animals that we interact with the most, right? So the and the ones that are pathogenic to humans, right? So those are the ones we congregate with. So the the fowl are the, are are influenza viruses. So that's where we get our influenza viruses. The bats are the source of our rabies, hanipa, and coronaviruses. And when we go out into the forest or when we bring them into our live markets 
or animals that they've infected. That's how we, and Ebola, obviously, the filoviruses come from bats. So that's how we get those from them. So it's just, you know, these are, these are viruses of animals. When we interact with those animals, that's how we get infected with those viruses. Yeah. So, um, all right, this is interesting. In light of the fact that you think some of us should get prepared for temperature testing when we go to work or what have you, if you're asymptomatic, what, what's the point? Correct. And, that, and that's an excellent question. So you're still left with the fact that you don't, you, it's, it's, I talk about it as source reduction. So it's not source elimination, it's source reduction, right? Yep. You, you, don't, you, don't, you, have, you can't eliminate the risk, you're reducing the risk. Uh, and until we get to, and it depends on if we do a good enough job and the public health department does a good enough job, we'll, we keep getting lower and lower. And potentially the day comes when we have, you know, everybody has a home PCR machine and first thing in the morning, you know, you spit into a tube and it says negative and you go to work or, or something like that, right? I think we need to be thinking outside the box about other approaches that may allow us to do more, even more source reduction. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, how effective could artificial intelligence be in the fight against COVID-19? Meaning, I think pattern recognition. Yeah, absolutely. Pattern recognition in terms of uh, symptom analysis of people. You know, if you got a note every day that said, ask how you were feeling and something kept track of that worldwide to see where hotspots were flaring up before they flared up. Uh, something that was mining EHRs for, uh, for pattern recognition. I think AI could play lots of roles. Yeah. Uh, this is a fabulous question from someone who I've had the pleasure of doing a lot of work with over the years. Uh, but she's asking a question of where do you and Ali go for your information? What are your best resources? Who, what do you trust? So, um, you know, an example. So, so where do you go? I mean, where, are you reading medical journals? Are you paying attention to WHO alerts, CDC postings, all of the above, none of the above? Do you pay attention to uh, the news media? What, what do you pay attention to? So I pay, I read a lot of, <coughs> I read a lot of medical journals. Uh, so obviously I read a lot of medical journals uh, and I keep, and I keep track of, uh, the 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 numbers at various uh, data sources in terms of what the numbers are going on. I also actually every day I try to read what's going on in China. I find what's going on in China very interesting to me, in how they interpret the data of the rest of the world, um, and how they interpret their own data in terms of how many cases they have and what's going on because they always seem to be a little bit ahead of the curve. Yeah. Okay. Uh, interesting. So what are your best resources? Right, we talked about that. Uh, this person coming back asking about 40%. Isn't that better than 100%? So I understand that. Uh, what happens if we cannot create and distribute an effective vaccine? Then we, we have public health. I'm a big believer in public health. Hmm. I, think pub, I think a public health strategy can get us almost 100% there if we do it right. I mean, ch look at China. China, you know, 1.2 billion people and they're down to less than 100 cases. If you trust them, they're down less to 100 cases in the whole country a day. That's not bad with a public health strategy. They don't have a vaccine. Sure. No, no, obviously that's, uh, that's... So I think you can do it. I think you can do it with a public health strategy. You just need to commit the resources to a public health strategy. Okay. Um, all right. So last, let's make this the last question. Then it's really one that I uh, that I've uh, got here on my list here, which is, Ali, look, I want to end this webinar with some positivity, upbeat, yes, positive hope, something that makes us all feel good as we get off this webinar. Because overwhelmingly, the data we see, the information we hear, the stories we learn about, the risks, the vulnerabilities, they all tend to be on the margin, negative, worrisome, et cetera. So- uh, I thought I just gave you some good news. China's, China's down to less than 100 cases a day. Yep. <laughs> uh, Germany's opening up, Aust Austria's opening up. I mean, uh, if you look at the US numbers, we were at 33,000, we peaked at 33,000 cases a day. We're down to 20. 26 or something, 24,000 now. I mean, all the numbers look good for us in the US right now. I mean, it looks like our curves are coming down. It looks like we're marching along the path towards Europe. Uh, unless something untoward happens, May's looking really good for us to start thinking about how do we slowly start opening back up our economy um, little by little. Yeah, I think, I think this is, uh, it's, uh, things are looking good now. 
much okay. much better than they did two weeks ago, two, three weeks ago. Good. Well, one of the last questions that I'll, I'll just comment on, you don't have to reflect on it. They said, good, I'm glad we're ending on a positive note because the idea of getting on a webinar with someone who writes about financial bubbles like me, which talks about financial downdraft, with someone who wrote a book called The Next Pandemic, kind of a scary concept to put the two of you together on a webinar. So uh, in any case, Ali, thank you so much for your time. I know that I've personally enjoyed the conversation tremendously. I hope my uh, the listeners here on the webinar did as well. Very insightful, really appreciate it. My guess is at some point here in the next month or two, I may be bugging you to come back on for a follow-up, but, uh, but thank you very much. No worries, a real pleasure, Vikram. Bye, have a great day. Thank you everybody for your questions. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. For more information, please do visit Dr. Mantramani's website at www.mansharamani.com or follow him on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram. And of course, if you haven't done so already, we encourage you to purchase his book, Think for Yourself, which is available for pre-order on Amazon.